Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Good morning. Merry Christmas Eve to you this morning. It's good to see you. If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke? Gospel according to Luke, chapter 2, is where we're going to be this morning. We are taking our fifth and final look at the Christmas story this morning in verses 8 to 20 here of Luke's gospel, chapter 2. We have been examining the Christmas story during this Advent season from different angles, different perspectives. We looked at Joseph's story, we looked at Mary's story, we looked last week at the Magi's story. If you were here with us last Sunday evening for our candlelight service, we looked at Jesus' story there in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And so now, to conclude this morning, in preparation tomorrow for Christmas Day, we are going to zoom in here on verses 8 to 20 and see now the shepherd's story, who, like the Magi last week, are going to prove to be some very unlikely Christmas guests. And I pray that as we look at these, it will help us to treasure even more deeply the wonder of Christmas. Luke chapter 2, when you find your place, if you're able, would you please stand with me out of honor for the reading of God's Word? Although we're going to be looking at verses 8 to 20, I want to begin reading in verse 1, if that's okay. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. Father, I love Jesus. We love Jesus. Thank you that on this Lord's Day, this Christmas Eve, we can gather to worship him. And so I pray for now the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate your word so that we would see and behold his glory. So help us this morning, I pray in my weakness as I preach in your people, Lord, that they would be attentive with hearts ready to receive. Would you deepen our faith, cause us to glory more in our Savior, to treasure him in our hearts, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Speaking personally, I love all things Christmas. I love it. I love the lights. I love the decorations. I love the presents. I love the traditions. I love each year hearing Bing Crosby sing White Christmas. I love it. I, I'm, I'm not like a Grinch who thinks, you know, well, as Christians, we should celebrate Christmas every day of the year. Bah humbug. I get it. Yes, absolutely. That's true. But I love the Christmas season. And I love the Christmas season because each year what we get to do is we get the opportunity again to together rehearse our Christology. To rehearse together again our Christology. Now Christology, what is that? That simply means the study of Christ. Of who he is, his, his person, his identity, his nature, who he is as the God-man. We get to rehearse that again every year together. Now, I know we can and we should do that any time of year, but the Christmas season is uniquely designed to provide us that opportunity. And I love it for that reason, because it is the most amazing glorious mystery beyond all others, and it shines most brightly at Christmas as we get yet again the opportunity to peer into this manger. And historically, the church has been rehearsing this Christology for generations now. You know, I was thinking about it this week that these stories that we've been looking at over the course of this Advent season, Joseph's story, Mary's the Magi, even this morning, the shepherds, they didn't have, as we do, 2,000 years of church history. 2,000 years of church councils. 2,000 years of helping to carefully 
thinking deeply, defending, articulating these deep and weighty truths that we celebrate each year at Christmas like the Trinity. The mysterious triune nature of the Godhead, one eternal God and three distinct persons. They didn't get that like we've got. Or the hypostatic union of Christ that Jesus possessed at the same time a fully divine and yet a fully human nature. They didn't have that like we do. And so it isn't surprising then that after hearing this report from these shepherds who had been visited by the angels, this divine commentary from heaven on the birth of this baby, that notice in verse 19, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Of course she was. What did all of this mean? This baby, the Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and now, 2,000 years this side of Christmas, and this side of the cross, we get to see fully what that means. And so I love that at the Christmas season, we get to rehearse together our Christology. But not only do we get to rehearse together our doctrine of Christ, we get to rehearse together our doctrine of salvation, of why this baby was born. That he was born to die for our sins, which is the greatest news in all of the world. And we see both here. We see our doctrine of Christ and our doctrine of salvation. As we look now at these lowly shepherds, what is announced to, get to them, again, some very unlikely Christmas guests. Why did God choose to announce this news first to them. I think if we can discover that this morning, it's going to help us understand why this is such good news of great joy. First, notice Luke, he recounts the birth narrative of Jesus by dividing it here into two parts, two halves of this birth narrative. The first coming, notice there in verses 1 to 7, and the second, notice in verses 8 to 20. Verses 1 to 7, we looked at, if you remember, last Sunday evening at our candlelight service, recounting for us the historical background, the, the setting and time of these events, by drawing our attention to the decree of Caesar that the vast Roman Empire should be registered. Notice there, look in verse 1, in those days, in Historic days, real days, the days of Caesar Augustus, a decree went out that all the world should be registered. Each person going to the place of their origin for this census to be taken, no doubt, I'm sure, a reminder to these Jews that they were living under Roman oppression. And so in verses 4 and 5, Joseph, notice he journeys from Nazareth to Bethlehem, this 100-mile journey or so with a very pregnant, betrothed wife. And although Caesar assumes that he wields unrivaled authority, he is actually the unknowing agent of God's plan because his decree results in the fulfillment of a prophecy spoken some 700 years prior to this by the prophet Micah that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, 
in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, king in Israel. And so then, this decree of Caesar Augustus is the means of placing Joseph and thus Mary and thus Jesus in Bethlehem to fulfill this ancient prophecy. Behold the providence of God. And then in verses 6 and 7, notice Luke describes the birth of Jesus now so plainly, so humbly. Look there, verse 6. And while they were there, the time came. The fullness of time for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Be careful not to romanticize too much the Christmas story. There is nothing appealing about this dirty, humble scene. Jesus is born in a room reserved for animals. He's laid in a feeding trough that functions as his first crib. I mean, this is, this is unthinkable for any child to be placed, let alone the Son of God. But it was all by divine design. It was God's plan because he didn't enter this world with a personal display of glory, but instead he temporarily laid aside that glory. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself. He laid aside that glory for sinners like you and me. So in verses 1 to 7, we see this very human, very humble scene, historic setting, details and events that have led to his arrival. But then, now, beginning in verse 8, the scene now shifts. Second half of the story, where now, now we get the heavenly announcement from the angels. Now we get heavenly commentary. Of what's going on here. To the shepherds. Of what this birth means. So it, it's almost as if we're hearing now heaven's perspective. Heaven's commentary on these events. And you see it there. Notice in verse 11 and in verse 14. Heaven's announcement of who this child is. Why he has arrived. In fact, it seems that his birth would have gone unnoticed without these events. Without verses 11, verse 14, unnoticed. So I want you to see this story here this morning in two movements. Two movements as we're told by the angels what the birth of this baby means. And then I want to close this morning by offering us some application for this Christmas from the example of these shepherds. And here's the question I want you to keep in mind as we walk through this story together. Why the shepherds? Why would God choose first to announce his birth, not to kings, not to nobles, not to Caesar Augustus, but to nameless shepherds? Two scenes. Scene number one, notice the angel's announcement to the shepherds in verses 8 to 14. The angel's announcement, verse 
8. And in the same region. So now the scene shifts from a stable in Bethlehem to just outside the town where Jesus has been born. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. So notice that the very first guests invited to the Christmas party, the very first guests in this Christmas story are a group of unlikely shepherds. To to whom does this announcement from the angel come? Well, it's not to Caesar Augustus. It's not to Herod, but to a group of shepherds. And where is it announced? Well, it's not in Jerusalem. It's not in Rome. It's not on primetime TV. It's on an obscure hillside somewhere outside of a little town of Bethlehem. Verse 8, these shepherds are watching the sheep on this hillside, protecting them from predators and thieves. And It's the night shift, apparently. Notice, watching their flock by night. Some of you work the night shift, you know there's not a whole lot going on. Oftentimes, there's not many people, I'm sure, awake. This is not prime time when this happens. Now, who, who were these shepherds? Who were these guys? Well, Philip Ryken, in his commentary, I think helps us to understand just a little bit more about these guys, about who they were. When he writes this, he says, shepherds were outcasts. We tend, he says, to romanticize the shepherds, especially since there are so many good shepherds in the Bible, but they did not enjoy a very good reputation in their day. They they were the outcasts of society. And because they lived out in the fields, Riken says, they were unable to keep ceremonial law and thus were treated as unclean. So you can think about with their profession, oftentimes, no doubt, they would come into contact with unclean animals. They would come into contact with dead animals. And so rendering them ceremonially unclean. Unable to participate in regular synagogue, temple worship. They were outcasts. They were unclean. Not only that, Riken, he also highlights how they were regarded as liars and thieves. That was the common stereotype, apparently, of shepherds in this day. So much so, he says, that it even made their testimony inadmissible in a court of law. Another commentator notes how the Mishnah, that's that's this Judaism's written oral traditions. The Mishnah referred to shepherds in belittling terms, describing them as incompetent, uneducated. Another documents the fact that shepherds were deprived of all civil rights. With the exception of lepers, Philip Ryken says, with the exception of lepers, they were the lowest class of men in Israel. Pious Jews of the time would have viewed this revelation to the shepherds with suspicion and dismissal. So friends, this is the lowest rung on the social ladder, apart from lepers. The shepherds. There is nothing special about these guys. No, this angelic announcement happens 
to a nameless group of shepherds in the dark, in obscurity, the first invited guests. Oh my. And apparently, verse 9, they're just as shocked to be the ones getting this announcement as we are. Because, look at verse 9, we're told that suddenly an angel of the Lord appears to them. Most likely, the angel Gabriel, though he isn't named here, which they were not expecting. In fact, we're told it was actually a terrifying experience as the heavens lit up with this announcement. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. This is the typical response when angels show up, by the way. Great fear. In fact, it seems that the angel is aware of this typical human response because look there, verse 10, the angel said to them, fear not. Don't be afraid. Why? For behold, I bring you good news. Evangelizomai. It's the same word as gospel. I bring you gospel, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So it would be the norm to be terrified when encountering all things heavenly and holy. Because as sinners before a holy God, we should be terrified. We rightly deserve His judgment, but this announcement shouldn't lead you to fear, but to great joy. Why? What is it about this announcement that should give these shepherds and us no reason to fear and every reason to rejoice? Well, verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Meaning, the reason that you shouldn't be afraid, the reason that you shouldn't fear, but instead rejoice, is because of the content of this gospel good news and who this good news is for. The content and who it's for. Why should they rejoice? Well, first, because of the content of this message. Look, look there. This good news. The, notice the titles given here to this one who is born. There's three of them. Three titles. Verse 11, notice, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He's a Savior. This child was born to deliver. This child was born to save. He was born to, to rescue from peril. To save from what? Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, if you remember, the angel appears to Joseph and he tells him, he tells Joseph, announcing this child's birth, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. He was born to save us. He was born to save us from our sin, not condemn us. That's why it's good news. 
And verse 11, he's not only the Savior, he's the Christ. Unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ. Christ meaning anointed one. That's, that's the meaning of the word Messiah. In other words, he is the long-awaited, long-anticipated, promised Messiah, the Christ, the, 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 the final king, the chosen king who would fulfill all the hopes and dreams of Israel. He's the Christ. And verse 11, he is the Lord. Oh my. The wonder of all wonders is that this baby is the Son of God. He is the, the second person of the Trinity, the Godhead. He's God. Isaiah chapter 9, in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. This child is the Mighty God. In other words, he is he is Yahweh. He is the Lord who has come in the flesh. He's born to bring salvation for sinners like you and me. Friends, this is the greatest announcement in the history of the world. So don't fear, rejoice. This is great news. The second reason it's great news, the reason you shouldn't fear but rejoice, is because of the recipients of this message. Look there, verse 11. For unto you is born this day. Unto you. This baby was born for you. For them. For these nameless shepherds. Unto you. But, but not just for them. Because look in verse 10. I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. His birth would be for all the people. This salvation would be for all the people. This gospel good news is for all the people. And thus the reason. Listen. The reason that this news is first announced. To a group of lowly shepherds is because they represent all the people. They are all the people. And this good news is for all the people, regardless of your social class, regardless of your social standing, regardless of your vocation or your skin color, or if you're blue collar or white collar or no collar, or if you are perhaps the most despised, most marginalized, most forgotten. This news is for you. That's why I came. It's for all the people. This is why you shouldn't fear but rejoice. <laughs> That's good news. But then, look at verse 12. The angel tells the shepherds that this announcement from heaven comes with a sign. There would be a sign. What would the sign be? Well, look at verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby. A baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So the sign that heaven has come to earth 
Salvation for God's people is here for all the people. Will be a baby? Lying in a manger? A helpless child laying in a feeding trough? And then suddenly, look at this, upon hearing this news, verses 13 and 14, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, this, this incalculable number of angelic beings, armies of heaven, that's what host means. One commentator says, I, I think it's every angel in creation, because this is the greatest moment in human history. All the angels surrounded by light, surrounded by glory here, appear before them to these humble shepherds, and notice, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What a scene. What a scene. This angelic announcement of good news, of great joy, is that God has graciously provided a Savior who's none other than Christ the Lord to these lowly, nameless shepherds. What a scene. Close scene one. Look at scene two. Shepherd's response to this announcement. Look at verses 15 to 20. How would you respond? Just, just try to visualize. What, what would your response be? Angels surrounded by glory, light, hosts of heaven. What would you do? Verse 15. After this heavenly announcement and celebration conclude, notice the angels return now to heaven from whence they came, and the shepherds immediately decide to go to Bethlehem where this child is. In fact, notice Luke says they went with haste. You know what that means? They were running. They were running. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And in verse 16, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And apparently, notice verse 16, unlike these Magi we saw last week, these shepherds had no heavenly GPS system. They had no star to, to guide them, right? And yet they managed to find him. I don't know. They went from house to house. I, they find him. And verse 17, when they saw it, it, meaning the sign, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child by the angels. So these unlikely guests now who have been entrusted with the greatest news in the world, this gospel good news, show up and tell the angel, tell them what the angel had told them. Verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. I mean, this seems to, yes, include Mary and Joseph, but it would also seem to be a much broader audience. All who heard it wondered more than just two. So everybody who hears is now wondering, meaning they're standing in awe of this news. Mary and Joseph are wondering. In fact, upon hearing this news from the shepherds, look at verse 19, Luke recounts for his readers Mary's experience at this moment. What she's feeling 
You remember, Luke is the only gospel writer who recounts the angel's visit to Mary in chapter 1. Look at verse 19 here. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So this report now confirms the promise that the angel had made to her nine months earlier. But she doesn't fully comprehend all that's happening here. I mean, how could she? She will in time. But right now, she's just pondering. What could all of this mean? Then in verse 20, Luke concludes, it's the last we hear of these shepherds in the biblical story. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So having heard the news, having seen the sign, having informed those present about the sign, they return home glorifying and praising God and telling everyone they knew about it. All they had heard and seen following, interestingly, the same example as these angels. Proclaiming and glorifying God. Those are the two scenes. That's the shepherd's story. Now, what does Luke want you to see? Well, thankfully, we're not left wondering. No, actually, verse 14, I sort of skipped over that one on purpose. Verse 14, we're given here heavenly commentary on these events, on on what they mean. When the host of angels appears to these shepherds, we're, we're actually now able to hear, overhear, heaven's reaction, heavenly commentary on what's taking place here. What's going on in this scene? Yes, verse 11, we're told who this child is. He's the Savior who is Christ the Lord. But in verse 14, we're also told now what the birth of this child means. His mission, why he came. Two things it means. Two things this sign given to these shepherds means. Look again, verses 13 and 14. Listen again to this heavenly commentary. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, here's the commentary, Glory to God in the highest. That's the first. That's the first thing it means. And on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to those with whom he is pleased. So then, what is Christmas about? Here's what it's about. God getting glory that he alone deserves. And you and I, these shepherds here on earth, getting peace that we don't deserve. That's what Christmas means. Glory to God, peace to us. First, Christmas is about 
God getting glory. As in all things, it's about the glory of God. That's why everything exists. That's why the universe exists. It's all from Him and through Him and to Him. The reason this child is born ultimately is for the glory of God. Christmas isn't primarily about you or me. It's about the glory of God. And the birth of this child, the Son of God, would be the greatest revelation of the glory of God. Glory to God in the highest. You know what that means? In the highest heavens. In all of the universe. This event right here. Glory to God in the highest. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. To look at Jesus Christ is to see the greatest manifestation of the glory of God. In Him, we see the fullest revelation of the glory of God. The fullest expression of God's glory. J.C. Ryle comments, notice this, now has come the highest degree of glory to God by the appearing of His Son, Jesus Christ, in the world. He, by His life and death on a cross, will glorify God's attributes, justice, holiness, mercy, and wisdom as they were never glorified before. In Christ, we see the fullest manifestation of the character and the attributes of God as they have never been witnessed, never been seen before. He is the manifestation of the glory of God. And so as the angels behold this glory, which the Apostle Peter tells us is a glory in which they long to look, 1 Peter chapter 1, they can't help but explode in worship and praise and glory to God. Glory to God in the highest. It's about God getting glory. And Christmas isn't only about God getting glory. But here's how that glory is most fully seen. Most fully known. Second, Christmas is also about you and I getting peace. God getting glory. Mankind getting peace. Look there, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Now, what kind of peace is He talking about here? Well, this peace isn't world peace. That's what everybody wants. That's what Miss America wants. World peace. It's okay to want world peace. And yes, when Jesus comes again, at His second coming, at His second advent, there will be peace in the new heavens and new earth forevermore. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, He's called the Prince of Peace. And then in verse 7, it says in Isaiah's prophecy of the increase of His government and of peace there will be no end. That's coming one day. And church, we should 
We should want that kind of peace. It's okay to long for that peace and pray for that peace. We should want peace on the streets of Mount Vernon. We should want peace in the Middle East. We should want peace in Washington. We just want peace sometimes in our families. And that is coming one day. But that isn't the kind of peace that the angels are announcing here first and foremost. So what is this peace? Well, this isn't a horizontal peace. It's not even an internal peace. This is a vertical peace. This is peace with God. That through the birth of Christ, God is graciously extending peace to undeserving sinners. Because listen, apart from His love, apart from His grace, apart from His initiative, there is only hostility between God and man. Justly deserving His wrath, separating us from Him because of our sin, putting us at enmity with Him. And so friends, our most basic need we have is peace with God. God is angry with us because of our sin that has separated us from Him. And we need to be reconciled to God. Just as we sang a moment ago, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. That's what we need. That's what we need most. And so Christmas is God Himself offering peace to the world through Christ and only through Him. Verse 14 Look there, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, what does that mean? The old King James said, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. It's made its way into many of our Christmas songs. That's not a good translation, goodwill to men. All modern, modern translations agree, that's not a good translation. Here's what the NIV says, this is a good translation. On earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. The New American Standard translates it, On earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. What's the point? The point isn't some kind of self-help effort whereby sinners seek to earn God's favor, you know, try to get into his good graces. No. The point is that even though God in coming and offering peace to the whole world through Jesus. Only His people, His chosen ones, those on whom His favor rests will receive this peace. God's gift of peace is given only to those whom He is pleased to call to Himself through the gospel. And this gift of peace comes to all those who respond rightly to this gospel. This good news. Only they will have peace with God. Glory to God. Peace to men. So as we close here this morning and we turn to the Lord's table, how are we supposed to respond to this? What should be our response this Morning. I mean, we've seen the shepherd's response. We've even seen the angel's response. What should be our response? Is there, is there anything we can learn here from the shepherds? 
Even these angels? Three things. How we should respond. Number one. We should respond by recognizing our need for this Savior who was born. We should respond by recognizing our need for this Savior who is born. That you and I need peace with God. All of us in this room, everybody, either at one point were or right now are at enmity with God. You are an enemy of God or were an enemy of God. Because of our sin and rebellion against Him. And so, rightly understood then, there is nothing sentimental about this nativity scene. It's not cute. There's nothing sentimental about it. Because the announcement of this child's birth reminds us of our most serious problem. And it confronts us with our sin. You see... We have a dilemma that we cannot resolve ourselves. And so we need to be rescued. We need to be delivered. We need to be saved. We need a Savior. Our deepest and most serious problem is the absence of peace with God because of our sin against God. And God cannot be indifferent to our sin. He can't ignore our sin. He must punish our sin. And so Christmas reminds us we need to be saved first and foremost from God himself. We need peace with God. And so Christmas rightly understood reminds us that we're unable to save ourselves. And it took nothing less than the death of the Son of God as the substitute on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, reminding us of what God has done to save undeserving sinners. It isn't about what you and I do. That would not be good news of great joy. It's about what God has done to reconcile you to himself, to make peace. That's good news of great joy. So how do you get this peace? Well, listen, no doubt there are some here this morning who have never put their faith in Christ. You're not a believer. You're not a Christian. How do you get this peace? How do I get peace with God? Well, here's how. Maybe you thought I was going here. This is where I'm going. Romans 5.1. Listen to this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice those three phrases. Justified by faith, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How can you have peace with God? Here's how. Believing, trusting in what Christ has done by faith in Him, God then counts to you the righteousness of His own Son, justifying you, declaring you innocent, not guilty, of your sins, forgiving all of your sins, justifying you, and making peace by faith alone. So what about you? Some of you, you may be here this morning because it's Christmas, 
Lots of people come to church just because it's Christmas. Who wouldn't normally come? But you have no interest in Christ. You have no interest in salvation, justification, peace with God. I just want peace on earth. I just want peace in my job. I just want peace in my family. I just want inner tranquility. Listen, there is no peace here. There's no peace here without peace here. Without peace with God. And it isn't by your deeds. It isn't by your church attendance. It isn't by your family background. But by faith in Christ alone. So have you come to see your need for a Savior? Your need for peace with God. That's the first way to respond. Here's the second way. Second way we can respond rightly. Is there... Is there anything we can see from these shepherds that we could imitate? Well, yes. How could we imitate these shepherds? Here's here's the second application. Respond rightly by making haste to look upon Christ. By making haste to look upon Christ. Look at verse 16. After the angel's announcement of his birth... Luke tells us they made haste. They, they ran to go and see him. Right? They, they, they ran to go look at this baby who was born, this Christ. And so in response to this good news, they immediately go to Jesus. Unlike the, remember the religious leaders last week when after they tell the Magi where the baby's born, they don't do anything. They don't go to Bethlehem to see him. But here these shepherds, they drop everything They leave their sheep, they leave their livelihood, and they immediately go to Jesus. Now, in a sense, all of us in this room who are Christians, who have put our faith in Christ, we have done this. We have left everything to follow Jesus. But I want to encourage us, church, this morning, especially this Christmas, to do this even more. And here's what I mean. Let's do what Charles Spurgeon encouraged his congregation to do in a Christmas Eve sermon, sermon, by the way, in 1865, when he said this, as we think today of the birth of the Savior, let us aspire to have a fresh birth of the Savior in our hearts, that we may go again to the Bethlehem of our spiritual nativity and enjoy our first love. Let us go to Jesus with something of that youthful freshness and excessive delight which was so manifest when we looked to him at first. I remember when I was in high school and I was really, I was just really growing in my faith. I remember there were times where I just, you know, you just, you wanted to be alone in prayer, in the Bible, just in the presence of the Lord. And, and if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that over, over time, that oftentimes can wane. Do you see what Spurgeon's saying here? What he's encouraging his church to do? He's saying, or he's asking, do, do, you, do you sense in your heart a growing coldness to Jesus? Like a familiarity that has just bred indifference. And, and you recognize a coldness in your heart. The flame of your first love has grown cold. The fire's gone. God can and he will awaken your heart afresh to the glory and the wonder and the majesty and the joy 
of this familiar Christmas story of this Savior in response to you seeking Him. Asking Him. Making haste to go to Him. To look upon Him. Affections may wane. Sinful hearts grow fickle and cold. And so, beloved, we must strive to stoke that flame of our first love. And how do we do that? We drop everything, we make haste, and we go to Jesus, and we look to Jesus. We behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We open our Bibles, again, with childlike wonder at this story. Here's the third and final application. How do we respond rightly? How do we imitate these shepherds? By going and telling of all that we've seen and heard. Verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them. Look at verse 20. And the shepherds returning, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. Now, I'm sure that these shepherds, at first, were speechless in amazement when this happened. But they didn't stay silent for long. A Savior is born, bringing peace with God. And that is news that cannot be kept silent. And church, we can't keep that to ourselves. Who is there in your life this Christmas that you need to make known this good news of great joy. And guess what? We have more understanding than they did. Mary is pondering all these things in her heart. What could they mean? The shepherds are wondering. The shepherds are pondering. Even after all they have seen and heard, glorifying and praising. This side, though, of Christmas, this side of the cross, this side of the empty tomb, we know what it means. How could we not go and tell? God himself, wrapped in human flesh, laid in a wooden manger, to one day be hung on a wooden cross and laid in a borrowed tomb to save the world. We cannot be silent. We must go and tell of all we have seen and heard. And let's continue now as we come to the Lord's table to follow the shepherds leading, glorifying and praising God for all we've seen and heard. Let's worship. Let's celebrate. Listen, Christians should be the happiest people in the world. Not because our circumstances are so great, but because our joy is tied to a person, the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Good news of great joy. So let's worship now as we come to the Lord's table. Would you just pause and reflect silently with me as we prepare our hearts?
some 30 years or so after this announcement on the hillside near Bethlehem. Jesus would gather with his disciples a few miles away in Jerusalem. The night before his crucifixion and his death to share one final meal with them. It was a meal that would picture why this baby was born. Why the Son of God had come into the world to picture in the bread and the cup that he was born to die. That it would picture our salvation. His body crushed, his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Here's what we read. Look here. Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, they reclined at table and the apostles with them. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. That's why he came. Before I suffer. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is all for you. So, beloved, if you're here this morning, and you're trusting in Christ for your salvation, that he died for you, believing in him, trusting in him, then this meal is for you. If not, we would ask that you let these elements pass you by as the ushers are going to come and distribute them. But if you are in Christ this morning, it's for you. Even if you're not a member of our church, but you have publicly professed your faith in Christ and you're a member in good standing with your church, we'd invite you to come. Share this meal with us. Let's pray, and our ushers will come. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.